Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, imagine that you, right now, with everything that you know about the world, could go back and talk to your past self in January of 2020. Now, maybe your past self is making goals, making plans. They have hopes and dreams for the year and the future. And future you, as you've traveled back in time, is is listening and watching as past you is writing all these down or saying them out loud and just nodding with that patronizing, bless your heart. Past you might say, I want to travel to Portugal this year, and future would, future you would say, uh, yeah, that's not gonna happen. Past you might say, I'm definitely doing it. I'm joining the gym for real this year, and future you would say, don't bother. Future you might start asking some questions to past you. Have you ever made sourdough bread? Have you considered moving to a bigger apartment? What's your sweatpant collection like? Have you ever considered buying stock in, I don't know, this is random, but a company called Zoom? Now you might think future you was a bit of a downer, um, but we all know a little better right now. Or maybe, you know, to, to remove ourselves from this hypothetical time travel situation, maybe you could go back to the start of quarantine. I, I know so many of us are achievers. And even as you saw the world kind of breaking down around you, you saw all these things that were becoming uncertain. You were like, I can make my list. I can dominate. I can achieve. Maybe you're like, this is my moment. Like I've already gone way past my New Year's resolutions. Whatever. We get a new chance at this. And maybe you're like, I'm finally going to be my best self. I'm not going to spend five hours a day on Instagram. I'm going to eat healthy, work out. I'm going to have a standing desk or maybe one of those treadmill ones. I'm gonna get some sleep. I'm gonna record those songs that I've written. I'm gonna read that book. I'm gonna spend time in prayer. I'm gonna have a nightly happy hour over Zoom with family and friends. It's all going to be so good. And here we are, six months later. And for some of you, I'm sure you're really doing well. And for others of us, you might just be tired. Now, if you're a vision-oriented person, which I know, because of, because of the kind of community that we have at Ecclesia, so many of you are, it may seem like this year, 2020, is, is, is calling for a smaller vision. Just get through it. Hold on. Survive. And listen, I, I know, right now we're all just a bit tired. Tired of the Groundhog Day, tired of Zoom, tired of church online, tired of being stuck, tired of the relentless bad news. The air that we breathe in American culture is that we can do it. If you can dream it, if you can draw it up in your mind, you can achieve it. But what 2020 has shown us in such an annoying way is that that is a lie. We've been presented with limitations at every turn, and we do not like limits. We do not like limitations. But here's the thing. As real as all of these disruptions, these circumstances, these limitations have been, and and I don't want to make light of these limitations. 
for, for many of us, these limitations are not just, oh, I can't uh, travel across the world. These limitations are about how are we going to make the monthly food budget this month. And so I, these circumstances, these limitations are incredibly real. And, and, and this whole sequence of disruption and in the midst of this, it's tempting in this moment to compress our vision. To accept the one torn piece of the map that we still hold in our hands as the whole of reality. But I think the question this moment has been asking each one of us as it seems to endlessly linger on is not, what is your vision? Because that's such a a hilarious question right now, right? Because if your vision was one thing in January of 2020, likely it has had to drastically be reoriented through the course of the year. So the question is not for us as the people of God, what is your vision, but who is your vision focused on? As we continue in our series of Revelation, uh, on the book of Revelation entitled Come, echoing the beautiful prayers, the beckoning for not only for Jesus to come to bring heaven to earth, but inviting the whole of the world, come all you who are thirsty and he will give you water to drink. As we continue in this series this morning, I want us to look at the circumstances, the disruptions, the limitations that face the early church. And I also want us to see how their vision was not compressed into reality as this kind of humdrum existence where they had to accept it is what it is, but their vision was focused on the one who is the great I am. John, the author of Revelation, was exiled on Patmos. He is a pastor without a flock that he can see on a daily basis. He spends many days and hours alone. He has been deemed an enemy and a danger to the state, which again, is just a subtle reminder that life in the kingdom of God, following Jesus, who claims to be the king of every king on the earth, does not easily endear us to the forces of empire. We don't fit neatly into nations because we are citizens of the one true nation, the kingdom of Jesus. John is advanced in age, and it would seem from every single metric that John's limitations, the confines of the island that he finds himself imprisoned upon, form the outline of his reality. How could John's life extend beyond the bounds of this place that he's in? It would seem that John has been, you know, for all intents and purposes, quarantined. That that his life is compressed to this single time and place. Now, imagine, it would be super tone deaf for me to go into a prison and, and look out at the inmates who were incarcerated for various amounts of time and say, hey, Everyone here, I I just want you to have a bigger vision for your lives. You can be and do anything you want to do. Just put your mind to it. Work hard. You can make it happen. The sad reality in that setting is the same that it would have been for John. It's that it's just not true. Being in prison is by definition a limitation. You are confined. That's part of the deal. But And here's where John's circumstances are so important for life in our own world. John is showing us that disruptive circumstances don't call for smaller, compressed visions. They call for reoriented, focused visions. I'm going to say that again. Disruptive circumstances don't call for smaller visions. 
We're not called to accept life as it is. They call for reoriented, focused visions. And we, as a society and a culture, and as a church, are in a disruptive, constrictive moment. But a quick survey of what's, what's facing John and the churches that John writes to in Revelation reveals that the book of Revelation, and this is why I'm so excited about this series, was written by and to a people who were facing very similar difficulties and circumstances. Let's take a look. Just a brief survey. and This is not comprehensive. But quickly, John, as we've talked about, is imprisoned on Patmos. The churches in Smyrna and the, the ancient city of Philadelphia are facing social pressure and even persecution and martyrdom. The church in Thyatira is dealing with the fake news and false prophets. The churches in Sardis and Laodicea are just going through the motions. The, on, the, on the verge of giving up, you know, Barna released a study that over 50% of millennials are not joining any sort of online church, even if they have historically attended church on a somewhat regular basis. They also said that one-third of, of church-going Christians haven't participated in an online gathering at all. And the churches at, at, or at Laodicea are just going through the motions. They're just, they're just tired. They're just done. The story of empire and politics is seen to be the dominant story. And the story of Rome demands all-encompassing loyalty. Those involved in churches are facing economic insecurity because many trades had cults that were associated with the actual trade. So to work as a mason or to work as an artisan, you would have to be associated with a cult that was dedicated to a pagan deity. And thus, if you refuse to offer allegiance or worship to that deity, you could be exiled from that trade guild. Thus, you would have a really hard time finding work. And to all of these diff different hardships, these, these vast survey of what's going on in the first century here, all of these restrictions, all that competes for their attention, their allegiance, all that would seek to rob them of their hope, John... In the midst of these circumstances that would seem so limiting, so constricting, sees a glorious vision of the risen Jesus. And it's this vision and the contents of it that we want to focus on today. So we're going to turn over, if you have a Bible, grab it. Turn over to Revelation chapter 1. We'll start in verse 9. Now the beautiful thing about Revelation is it's the very end of the book. Fairly easy to find. So turn over there with me. John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 9, John writes, I, John, your brother, who share with you and Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see, and send it to seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the one whose face it was, whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on upon turning I saw seven 
golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining with full force. This is an incredible vision, and we want to unpack what John sees, because so much of this imagery invites us to reorient our vision, to fix our eyes on the one who is on the throne. So let's look at John's vision. John hears a voice that sounds like the blast of a trumpet grabbing his attention. And when he turns to see the source of the voice, he sees one like a son of man. Now this reference alludes to the book of Daniel. Daniel in his own vision, Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14, sees a vision of one like a son of man. And Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This vision of Jesus as one like a son of man is glorious, awe-inspiring, and powerful. This image sets the scene for the descriptions that are to follow. Now Jesus throughout his earthly life would often apply this title. It's actually the title that he uses for himself the most, son of man, when speaking of himself. People listening to Jesus would have been familiar with this phrase from the book of Daniel and other books that aren't in the Bible like the book of Enoch. Now, it's likely that those who heard Jesus saying this of himself, that he was the Son of Man, would have understood that he was claiming to be the Messiah. I mean, you see this glorious vision. The Messiah was the Christ, the anointed king in the line of David, who, you know, there were vast expectations for this Messiah, all kinds of different expectations. But, but if we were to summarize those expectations, we would say the Messiah was thought to be a king, who, like David, would lead the nation of Israel to prominence, would overthrow their pagan rulers, would usher in proper worship. You know, like when David welcomes the, uh, the tabernacle back into the Ark of the Tabernacle back into the city and he dances before the Lord. They thought the Messiah would do all of these things, that he would be a political figure. And so Daniel's vision aligns with this sense, right? This glorious, powerful, mighty vision. And so when Jesus is saying that I am the Son of Man, they would have thought, yes, finally, this is our King. This is the one who's going to lead the revolt, who's going to overthrow the Romans. But there was only one flaw in that vision as the people applied it to Jesus, the cross. Any delusions of grandeur, in the mind of, of the people that ascribe this kind of power to Jesus, or so it seemed, were completely crushed by the cross. A pagan cross being conquered by the enemies of God was no place for the Son of Man, God's Messiah. This is why Jesus was so viscerally taunted by those who watched him be crucified. The cross 
was not, you know, nobody's watching Jesus be crucified and think, wow, he's conquering the world. The cross was a shameful death that the Jewish people associated not with glory, but rather with being cursed by God. But here, as the voice speaks to John as the Son of Man, when we hear this title now and hear in Revelation on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus, we not only think of the honor and the glory due to the Son of Man, but we think of the way that the Son of Man ascended to this honor and glory. The way that Jesus ascends to his throne is on a cross. Jesus is a harmony of word and deed as the word of God made flesh. Everything that he speaks, he does. He is a perfect congruence of action and thought and will and emotion. Jesus called himself the son of man when he told compelling stories about the kingdom of God. When he shared the table with prostitutes and sinners, Jesus called himself the Son of Man when he stood on trial before Pilate, fearlessly laying down his life. Jesus is the God who overcomes, by, who conquers by giving of his own life, not by taking the life of his enemies. His perfect love drives out all fear. And John continues in this description. This Son of Man, this glorious one, is the one who sits on the throne, who speaks with the voice of a trumpet. And John is going to try to describe what he looks like. The Son of Man is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, this is not a who are you wearing kind of situation. John's description is evoking the garments of Aaron, the first high priest in Exodus 29. This glorious king, this Son of Man, is not just an image of power. He is a priest. Hebrews will call Jesus our great high priest who is familiar with our sufferings. And the image here in Revelation 1 is of a king and a priest. The king who is able, mighty to save, the conquering one leading us, and the priest who is a bridge. What do priests do? But they try to tell the world what, what their God looks like. And Jesus is both king and priest and the, as the priest of God, as the one in the line of Aaron, showing the world what God truly cares about, showing the world that, that God never demanded sacrifice from us, but rather sacrifices himself in order to pour out his grace and his mercy. John then moves to describe some of the physical features that he sees. The text says that his hair is as white as wool, which is a reference to purity Echoing the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 51, wash us white as snow. John writes, his eyes are flames of fire. Fire in the scriptures, even when it's used in reference to judgment, evokes purification. Psalm 139 declares how God knows every part of us. But God's gaze upon us is not just about seeing, not just about revealing. It's not just as if God is, is putting us on the table and saying, look, look what I see. God's vision towards us, his eyes of fire, see not only what is, but what could be and what should be. They burn away that which is not of God. Jesus is not only the Holy One, the one with hair as white as wool. He is the one who makes us holy. And then John describes his feet of burnished bronze. The bronze base is firm. Daniel, in his vision earlier on in his story, shows the egomaniacal King Nebuchadnezzar making an image of himself to be worshipped of gold and silver and bronze. But the feet 
of this image that Nebuchadnezzar constructs and that Daniel sees are made of clay and iron. A stone strikes the image in the feet and it is destroyed in Daniel chapter 2. But here, John, in referencing this book of Daniel, this, this vision, here Jesus' feet are burnished of bronze, and they have been through the furnace of fire. They are of purified metal and will not corrode or crumble, tarnish or rust. John is making the point that the rule of Christ rests on a firm foundation. Unlike the rule of the kingdoms of this world, Christ's rule is settled and secure because of what he has done in his cross and resurrection. And his voice, John describes, before like a trumpet now sounds like the the, the rush of many waters. And if you've ever stood by a raging waterfall, maybe you've been to Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls, the sound is deafening. The power is undeniable. And the source seems unending. How? How can so much water fall in one instantaneous moment and yet there's still more? This is the immeasurable glory of the voice and the word of God. Endless, powerful, life-giving, commanding. And now John, as he moves throughout his vision, as we're unpacking what he sees, now he moves to describing what he is holding. And in his right hand, the hand of action, the hand of dexterity, he holds seven stars. The passage will later tell us, That these seven stars, at the end of Revelation chapter 1, these seven stars are seven angels of the seven churches that John is writing to. What an incredible image for us, Ecclesia. I think we should just pause for a moment. That as we, as a community, have planted a church, that God sends one of his angels uh, to, to guide us and to guard us and to watch over us. What an incredible image. But but John is writing to an ancient world that would have also understood uh, elements of astrology. And and in fact, astrology would have bled into sort of the common interpretation of a lot of events. Uh, Their cultural lens was was often one of fate, that that things were written in the stars and us living our lives was just kind of living them out. Uh, People understood that the fates were controlled by the seven known planets at the time. And the notion that, that basically life was unfolding as it was foreshadowed in the stars was fairly commonly accepted. And those stars, in John's vision, are, are not somewhere over there, but they're in the hands of Jesus, the one like a, the Son of Man. He holds the whole world in his hands. Fate is not some impersonal force. Life is in the very careful and sovereign hands of the risen Son of Man. It's important for us to understand how countercultural and counterintuitive this was with all of the circumstances seeming to say that, that Rome was ruler or that fate was impersonal and accidental. Jesus is holding the world in his hands. And John then details the sharp, two-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of the one like a son of man. This sword signifies the ongoing rule and reign of the risen Messiah, ruling the world the same way that he created it, with the word of his mouth. Lastly, John describes his face, glorious, shining like the sun. The face of God throughout the scriptures is associated with blessing. 
Every week at the conclusion of our gatherings, we pronounce the blessing from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. We taught a whole series on blessing this past summer. And the basic premise of that series was this, that God's fundamental posture towards the world and towards you is blessing. And we tried to unpack and define what it means to be truly blessed. And here John sees a radiant vision, the joy and the blessing of the risen Savior shining like a billion suns ablaze, like looking at the sun, its light overwhelms our ability to take it in, but we get life and warmth from its light. Jesus' face is too much to take in, but it's also too beautiful to look away. John's vision is so comprehensive. It is so astounding and stunning. And listen, I know that at this point, this kind of glory, this kind of scale, it it, it can seem overwhelming. Sure, we, we get it, right? Like this is almost our default operating system when it comes to God. Jesus dwells in this sort of mysterious, distant, overpowering sovereignty and, and I guess it'll all work out in the end. He's the king of the world. I don't exactly know what he's doing up there because I don't know if he's seen what's going on in 2020, but it's not going so well. But I guess all will be well and, you know, at the end it, we'll figure it out because he's king. Like this is kind of our default operating system. But this is not the picture that Revelation is painting. Not of some distant deist God who's ruling somewhere. No, not of some overpowering, awe-inspiring thing that, that, that compresses us into this kind of broken submission. Well, I guess you're God, and I guess whatever happens is, is somehow a manifestation of your will. No, this is not what John is doing. But notice John's response. He is so overwhelmed by this vision. He says in Revelation 1, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But I want us to pay attention to what happens next, because it's so important. It's so important as we talk about both the scale of our vision, how big is it, because right now we have a really big vision. But we need to see the who in this scenario. We need to see who are our eyes focused on. Not just power, not just might, but a God who comes to us in presence and relationship. Look at what it says. He placed his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, write what you have seen. What is and what is to take place after this? As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What hand does Jesus place upon John as he says to him, do not be afraid? The word that heaven always has to say to earth, he places his right hand The same hand that holds the universe, the seven stars, the same hand that that, uh, sends the angels to the seven churches is now holding and greeting and comforting John and saying, do not be afraid. 
Jesus, the one who was dead and now is alive forevermore, proclaims the gospel to him, that he now has the keys of death and Hades. And these forces are not governed by random, impersonal forces in the world, malevolent empires wielding their swords and their death penalties, not by viruses or economic forces or natural disasters. Jesus is the one who holds it all. And listen, This does not mean that everybody that dies has done so at some appointed time by the will of God. No, I I think there is far too much tragedy in this world. When Isaiah sees his vision of the world that is to come, the mountain that is to come, he says, no longer. No longer will a child live only a few days. And so we have to understand that Jesus is not saying like everything that happens in the world is just a simple manifestation, a machination of my will. No. What it means is that come what may, even if the worst that this world can throw at us should find us and befall us, we are not beyond the confines of the right hand, the saving hand of the Savior. He has the keys to where we are and He will bring us to Himself in His house. There are many rooms and He will come to us. This is such a rich passage. And here's the last of it. Lest we feel that this is all so far off, that it's all so future-oriented or heavenly-oriented, that it is of no earthly good, that Jesus is up in heaven and sure, we'll all be okay in the end, John shows us exactly where this one, this glorious one that he sees, is not just reigning on a throne of unapproachable light, glorious and majestic. He is the one who is among the lampstands. And he describes what the lampstands are. The lampstands are the seven churches, these specific churches that have specific issues and are facing specific circumstances. But the number seven, the number seven in its symbolism signifies completion, perfection. It symbolizes a totality that every church throughout the, the world has Jesus present and guiding and walking among them. He is the one who walks among the lampstands. Revelation tells us, gives us a vision of Jesus, this glorious Son of Man, present in the day-to-day circumstances of our very lives. Friends, don't miss the incredible significance of this. Jesus, the one who holds the stars, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, whose hair is white like wool, whose eyes burn like fire, who holds the keys to life and death and Hades and is alive forevermore. Jesus, that one, that glorious one is right here, present with us, walking with us in the midst of our circumstances. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. Jesus is here. And so I ask you again, in response to all the events of the past year, to all the disappointments, to the loneliness, the twists and the turns, is your vision too small? Is your vision of God too compressed? Is your vision of your life Just an acceptance of it is what it is. Do you really believe that the God of the universe is big enough to be king of the entire world and at the same time to meet you right in the midst of your own world? Because if not, 
What John is saying to us and inviting us to behold and to fall down in wonder and in awe at the sight of is that if not, if we don't see this cosmic Jesus as the one who is both reigning and sovereign and yet present in the midst of everything we ever face, then our vision of Jesus is too small. Ecclesia, when John wants to encourage the churches As they are experiencing so many difficulties from so many different angles, he doesn't start. He doesn't start with the end. He starts with the right now. This incredible, incomprehensible vision of Jesus. Big, sovereign, powerful, yes, but present. Walking among the lampstands, not removed in his resurrection glory from from the pain and the sorrow of this world, but the God who crosses every distance. Ecclesia is our vision of God, the one that John sees, the one so glorious and yet so near. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, The people of God were facing insurmountable odds, surrounded by enemies on every side. King Jehoshaphat, overwhelmed and filled with fear, declared the only thing he knew to do in the moment. He declared a fast throughout the land and sought the presence of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 20 verse 12 says, O our God, as King Jehoshaphat prays, will you not execute judgment upon them? For we are powerless against this great multitude that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the middle of the assembly, and he said, Listen. All Judah and inhabitants of Israel and Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed at this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them, they will come up by the ascent, and you will find them at the end of the valley before the wilderness. This battle is not for you to fight. Take your position, stand still, and see. See the victory of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be fear, or do not fear, do not be dismayed tomorrow. Go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then it says in verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Friends, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, we beseech Him to move. We see God and His beauty and His majesty. We see our circumstances for what they are. We know that we cannot face everything that we have to face alone, and we cry out to Him. And when we cry out to Him, heaven is moved. The Spirit is poured out. We respond with our native tongue. We respond with worship and praise. And look at what happens. 2 Chronicles 2, verse 20. They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe what he has said. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing 
to the Lord and to praise him in his holy splendor as they went before the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the the enemies of God so that they were routed. The Lord is fighting the battle for us, Ecclesia. Jehoshaphat prays, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What an honest and beautiful prayer. And Ecclesia, I don't know what this moment has been about for you, but I do know this. This is not the moment to shrink our vision, not the moment to settle for life as it is. You don't need to expand your vision. We need to reorient our vision. Is our vision big enough? Is maybe the wrong question. Is our vision on the right person? Is our vision fixed on the throne of Jesus, the glorious Son of Man, who is great and sovereign and powerful, yes, but reigning and walking in our midst also? We may not know what to do, but we fix our eyes on this glorious vision of Jesus on the throne, holding the seven stars in his hands, holy and purifying, settled and sure on his throne, blessing and turning his face towards us, walking in our midst. We don't know what to do, Ecclesia, but we know who to look at. Is our vision too small? Is our vision settled on the right person? Ecclesia, I know so much of this year has been so difficult. I want you to see the response of Jehoshaphat and the people of God is exactly what God is calling us to in this moment. It's exactly what God was calling John of Patmos and the churches in Revelation to do. To turn their vision, their attention, their affection, their energy, all their heart and their soul towards Jesus on the throne. Ecclesia, this is the moment. We have to do the inventory. What is competing? What is compressing our vision? What is is competing for our attention? And we have to turn our eyes in prayer and in worship, in in trust and in uh, seeking to understand this glorious vision of Jesus on the throne. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. I don't even know what to do. But I know who to fix my eyes upon. Let us do this together. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Would you say that with me? We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I'm going to put up a picture that by our very own Brooke Y. And it's just a beautiful image of Jesus the resurrected Savior holding the world, holding the, the seven stars in his hands, holding the, the angels that were distributed to the seven churches. He is near. His nearness, his proximity, his touch is tangible. And I want you to just in this moment bring before the Lord whatever circumstances you're facing, whatever questions you have, the, the, the gaps, the doubt about where you'll be able to make ends meet, the sense of loneliness, of just being left out or not feeling like you're a part of whatever's going on, even though we're all in this weird space of limitation. And what I want you to do just in this moment is just to envision Jesus holding that, holding you, holding your future, holding your family or your loved ones or your friends, 
holding your vocation and your calling, holding your life, your gifts, your abilities, holding you. And in this moment, as you focus on this lovely uh, depiction, this piece of art, would you just allow the Holy Spirit to, to, to reciprocate that vision? As Jehoshaphat prays, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. To see the vision or revelation that his sun, or his face shining like the sun in all its brilliance has turned towards you. He is holding you. He is seeing you. He is with you. And let that lead our hearts to respond in awe and in wonder and in worship. Ecclesia, the battle is not ours. We don't know what to do, but we know who to fix our eyes upon. Let us expand our vision of this beautiful Jesus. It is a vision big enough for all of eternity. He is alive now and forevermore. He holds the keys of death and Hades, and he holds each one of us in our hands. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.